Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. During the season of Lent, we are doing a sermon series called The Footsteps of Jesus. The goal of this series is to explore how each of the steps or stages in Jesus's ministry are aspects of our own journey as Christians that we need to mirror in our lives. I hope you enjoy. With that, let us move forward to our first scripture reading coming from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. When they had come near Jerusalem and reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village ahead of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, the Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them and sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, Who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. The word of the Lord. Can you believe it's snowing? <laughs> Good stuff. So, I want to tell you all, based on what he just read, I asked my son yesterday, I said, do you know why they used palms on Palm Sunday? And he said, of course. They had to keep Jesus cool and keep the flies away. And I said, good answer. So that's why you have them. Keep yourself cool with it, okay? Matthew 21, 12 to 17. Just a continuation of what we were reading. Then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he cured them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the amazing things that he did and heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became angry and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and Nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. He left them, went out of the city to Bethany, and spent the night there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, during the season of Lent, we've been doing a sermon series called, do you remember? Footsteps of Jesus. That's right, it took eight weeks, but we got there, okay. So, the footsteps of Jesus. The idea behind this series is that each week we are looking at the various steps or stages in Jesus' ministry, and we're asking, what does Jesus do in this various stage that we need to be mirroring in our own lives as Christians? Last week, we talked about step six in Jesus' ministry. Do you remember what we talked about? We talked about 
miracles. And we described those miracles, we went through the scriptures, and I told you that really it's not worth our time to sit here and debate whether these did or did not happen. The point of these miracles, in my opinion, is to show us that as Jesus' disciples, we are going to be called to do things that seem impossible. We're going to be called to do things that simply cannot be done, but we have to find a way because that's how we create God's kingdom here on earth. The impossible has to become possible. And so today, that concept leads very nicely into what we're going to be talking about with step seven, which we're talking about Jesus's journey to the temple in Jerusalem. What we call, what is it called? It's called Palm Sunday. All right. So in order to understand what happens on Palm Sunday, we have to go back and look at some larger context of what's happening within Jesus's world, because he didn't just wake up one morning and say, you know what, I think I'm going to go down to the temple and cause some trouble, right? He didn't do it that way. The reason why he goes into the temple is because of a lot of events that had been transpiring prior to when he got there, things that had been brewing in the Holy Land for decades. So I want to paint a picture for you of what's going on. You cool with me on that? Yeah? Yeah? Are you all bummed because of the snow? Is that why you're just so sad looking this morning? (laughs) Okay. So, if we're going to understand why he goes in and he overturns the tables of the money changers and the sellers of the sacrifices, we need to go back to before when Jesus was born. So Jesus was born, a lot of people say he was born when? Zero, right? Like, but that's not when he was born. He was born around 4 B.C., about four years before that. And we need to go back to 26 B.C., about 22 years before Jesus was born. 26 B.C. is very important because that is the founding of the Roman Empire. So what happens is you have this guy, his name is Emperor Augustus. He is claimed the victor. He takes control of the Roman Empire after a very bloody civil war. It was long and protracted, but he is declared the victor. And he becomes the ruler of the largest empire in the world at that point in time. Now, being that it was so large, it was both a blessing and a curse. It was a curse in the sense that it was very hard to control all of that territory. I mean, that's a lot of territory to control, right? So one of the ways that they controlled it was with violence. They would basically crush any type of resistance with brutal force. So what they did was that they had soldiers all around this empire. They were stationed everywhere. So anywhere you went, you would see soldiers, and they were watching you, and they wanted to make sure that you weren't going to break the law. And if you did break the law, then they could arrest you and they could also attack you with violence. So many people were scared to do anything and this prevented uprisings and revolts. But Augustus was smarter than that. He wanted to use that as a last resort because he knew that if his subjects were financially prosperous, there would be no need for violence. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, people are doing well, then you don't need to hurt anyone. So After the Civil War that had produced this empire, he realized that he had to get the economy back on track. And so what he does is, he does something very smart. He releases standardized coinage throughout the empire. And this is what it looks like. You can see on one side it says Caesar. The other side you can see it says Augustus. So that's an original gold coin when he took power. Now when he releases this coinage into the empire, what it does is it allows 
for all of these nation states, all those places that got subsumed into that whole map that you saw, to be able to do business with one another. So if the curse of such a large empire is keeping it under control, the blessing of a large empire is that everybody could do business with everybody else. And it created a booming economy in many places, including in the Holy Land. So wealthy Jews, they loved being able to do business under this new Roman regime. And for the first 40 years of the Roman Empire, from, from about 26 all the way to about 14 AD, what you see is that Rome produced a very robust and diversified economy in the Holy Land. Now, Jesus himself would have benefited from this because it produced an improved standard of living from everyone from aristocrats to artisans all the way down to peasants. So Jesus, he's in the middle of this economic boom. That's important for you to know. Now, what was Jesus? He was, we all know, what's he called? He's called a carpenter, right? That's what he was. Now, the word that we translate as carpenter is tecton, tecton. Now, a better translation of tecton than carpenter is really handyman or even day laborer. So Jesus was a guy who you would pay to do odd jobs. If your roof is leaking, you bring him in and he gets it fixed. Now, the problem is that he comes from a place called what? Where's he from? He's Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth has about 100 families in it at this point in time. I mean, there's not many homes there. So you can imagine he doesn't have a whole lot of work to support himself. And most of the people who live in Nazareth are not very well off at all. They're peasants like he is. Now, what's interesting is that about five miles away from Nazareth was a city called Sephoris. So you can see right there, it's about five miles out. And in Sephoris, that was home to some of the wealthiest citizens in all of Galilee and all, all of that region. And around the time, around 6 AD, they started a building project to begin building all these new homes in the city of Sephoris. So more than likely, Jesus, because he didn't have enough work in Nazareth, he would have gone and been part of that building project in Sephoris during his teenage years. And he wouldn't have been the only one. There were building projects going on all over the Holy Land, and peasants from all over the place were able to go and work on these projects. And so what you have to realize is that these building projects gave these peasants income that they didn't have. It gave them money. So if their crops, which they subsisted on crops, right? I mean, this is how they survived. And if the crops didn't do well, which, by the way, happened a lot back then, then they would have extra money to go to market to be able to buy food. Now, think about it for a second. You're a peasant. Put yourself there. You there with me? You're a peasant. Your normal life is that your meals are inconsistent, right? You don't necessarily know if you're going to eat from one day to the next. When you get this money from these building projects, what happens? You can now what? You can eat whenever you want, and it brings this consistency to your life that was lacking. Now, unfortunately, the prosperity of that first 40 years would be undone by Augustus's successor, a man named Tiberius. So Tiberius, he was not nearly as shrewd as Augustus was, and he was very selfish. He didn't really care about his subjects. He cared only about himself. He was very greedy. So this is what happens. He comes in 14 AD, and all that coinage that Augustus had put out into the empire, he starts hoarding it into the Roman treasury. 
for himself, for his own uses. Now think about what's going to happen with that. If you start pulling money out of the economy, is that going to have a good effect on things? No, it's not. And so what happens is, there's this huge negative effect, because as the money's taken out of circulation, the interest rates begin to skyrocket, and just like today, it creates a credit crisis. Now, you have to realize that it's not like today. Today, if we have a credit crisis, you feel it almost immediately, right? Everything happens immediately. It took about six years for this to be felt in the Holy Land, in Galilee in particular. So by about 20 AD, what's happening is all of these building projects that I was talking about, they start to get finished. They're, they're kind of they're finishing them up. So what does that mean if all of those building projects are finished? That means that all that extra money that those people had gotten used to, it's gone, isn't it? They can't use it anymore. So all of a sudden, they're back to where they were, right? Where they were just subsisting because that money isn't present. So that's the immediate effect of that credit crisis on the peasant population. You with me so far? You with me? Okay. Now that's the immediate effect. The fact is there are other forces that are at work that are going to affect them in worse ways. So with less money all around, what happens is the provincial and local governments, do they have the money to function like they used to? No because there's this credit crisis. So who do they depend on to get their money? Tax collectors. And the tax collectors, in order to be able to raise this money, what do they start doing? They start increasing their tax rates. This is why you hear so much about tax collectors in the Gospels, right? You see it all the time. And it's because these tax collectors were robbing people blind in order to be able to fund the government because of this credit crisis that was created by Tiberius. You follow me so far? You still with me? Okay. So what happens is, by the mid-20s, a lot of these peasants who were now just subsisting had gone further into debt. And they were so far in debt that they ended up having to forfeit their land in order to remediate the debt. And here's the real kicker. Here's the irony. You know who owned their land now? The very people for whom they had built those wealthy homes in cities like Sephoris. So all of those wealthy people who they had got all that extra money from, they now own their land. But it wasn't just the peasants who were suffering. The fishing industry around the Lake of Galilee wasn't doing well either. So if you look at ancient maps of Galilee, what you'll see is that there's all of these little coastal fishing villages there, right? All the way down across. Tiberias, by the way, if you look above that, I didn't circle that because that was actually a wealthy city as well. But all these little coastal villages. And these coastal villages, they were home to families that had fished the lake for centuries. But what you have to appreciate is that prior to Roman rule, that was a public lake. Anybody could go out, anybody could fish on it, you get the food that you wanted, and you made a decent income, right? After Roman rule, that all changed. Because now the lake belongs to the aristocracy. And so Herod, you've heard of him before, right? He owns that lake. That's his. And he tells you how many fish you're allowed to catch. And so with the credit crisis, he starts taking more and more of the daily catch of people like Peter, James, John, Andrew. He's taking more. And so as he's taking more of this, right, these little mom-and-pop fishing joints that have been open for centuries, they're struggling to stay afloat now because 
they can't bring but so few fish to market. And so by about 28 AD, that's when what happens? Jesus begins his movement. It should come as no surprise to you that Jesus' movement begins at the height of this credit crisis. Jesus watched as families who formerly made a living wage were unable to support themselves. He watched as people were giving up their businesses. They were selling their land. They were living as indentured servants and people wanted to know, how did we get into this situation? How did we get here? And more importantly, how do we get out of it? Where's the solution to the problem? So Jesus comes along and he has two things. He has an answer and he has a solution. The answer is pretty simple. The reason why they're in that situation is because wealthy Jews were colluding with the Roman Empire. And they were willing to do anything to make money. And because they were willing to do anything to make money, they had basically made a pact with the devil in their opinion. What had benefited everyone in the short term was now destroying everyone in the long term. Do you see? Because what he knew is this. He knew that the people for whom he had built homes in Sephoris, they now owned all of the land of all of his friends. That's what he saw. And so what he decided was, we need to do something about the corruption that started all of this. And the greatest symbol of corruption in all of the Jewish family was at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, this temple, this is a recreation, a digital recreation of it. If you were a member of the Jewish family, if you were part of the Jewish faith, you would go to the temple to offer sacrifices. Because according to the Old Testament in the Bible, if you want to be forgiven, what do you have to do? You have to hand a sacrifice over to the priest. The priest sacrifices it on your behalf. Then you're forgiven. You're in good standing with God. Now, generally speaking... If you were an observant Jew, you would try to make it to the temple once a year to offer sacrifices. But most Jews didn't live in Jerusalem. They lived out of town. And so when they came into town, they didn't have a sacrifice to offer. So what did that mean? Well, they had to buy a sacrifice. And this created a whole industry around the buying and the selling of sacrifices. So let's say for a second you're a Jew. You're coming in from out of town. And so you come up to the temple. I don't have my clicker here, but I can show you. So before you go in to offer the sacrifice, you're going to come up to this place right here. And this is actually where they would have sold all the stuff, is right in here. So you come in, and you're from out of town, but you don't have the right money because you need the money, right? You, have the, you don't have the right kind of money. So the first thing you do is you go in, and you got to change your money. It's like when you go to a foreign country, you, know how to, you have to change your money. So you change the money, and they charge you a pretty hefty fee for that, by the way. It wasn't just, oh, yeah, no problem. We'll just change it up. There you go. No, they charged you a fee. Then you go over to the sellers of the sacrifices once you got your money. And they're offering you anything from a small dove all the way up to a full-size bull. And everybody's charging top dollar. This isn't like free market economy where they're like competing with each other for the best prices. Prices are fixed. Everybody knows what they're offering. So if you're wealthy, can you afford to worship God? Oh, yeah, you can. If you're a peasant, though, and you're poor, and you're already in debt, you have to go further into debt to be able to do something that should have been a fundamental right of being Jewish. Now, here's something else you need to know. All of the priests who ran the temple, all of these guys were members of the aristocracy. They were all wealthy, and they stayed wealthy because they took a cut of every single transaction that took place on temple property. When you change the money, they get a cut. When you buy 
the sacrifice, they get a cut. And you know what they also did? This is even crazier. After they sacrificed it, they take the meat and they'd sell it at market. They got a cut of that too. So they were making money hand over fist, right? Bringing all of this money in. And this is probably what inspired Jesus to say the words, you cannot serve God and wealth. Probably his reference point is what's happening at the temple. Another thing you need to know about the priests is that they were all very pro-Roman. Every one of them had been vetted and placed in there by Rome, and they were loyal to Rome's interests. You might expect Jesus felt that was a conflict of interest, right? And this is why he says, we see this shortly after he goes into the temple, he makes that very famous statement. He says, give therefore to, to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. So it's the idea of these two things should be separate. Politics should not be controlling religion. Yes, we're on the same page? Okay. So, Jesus sets out to do the impossible. He marches in to Jerusalem with his disciples, and his goal is to tear down the political power structure that is destroying his people. And that's why he goes into the temple, he turns over the tables of the money changers, the sellers of the sacrifices, and he's trying to make a statement, and he wants them to understand this is wrong, this needs to stop, and until Rome gets out of the affairs of the Jewish people, the Jewish people will continue to be oppressed. We got the message? That's the message. By the way, the aristocracy got that message loud and clear. They heard it real quick, because as soon as he went in and he did that, they saw that this guy was dangerous. He could cause an uprising. If he garnered enough support, he could cause a revolt. So this is why they arrest him and charge him with treason. What is treason, my friends? Treason is the charge of trying to overthrow the government, to take down the government. And he is charged with that specifically because he goes in and causes all that chaos in the temple. Because they knew that that was directed at them and their connection with Rome. And this is why they arrested him and had him executed as quickly as possible. Now, I have heard from many people throughout my time as a pastor that Jesus was not a political figure, that Jesus was a religious figure. And indeed, I would agree with you that up until this point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus generally avoided politics. But on Palm Sunday, Jesus became overtly political. He crossed over from religion into politics because he felt that the political power structure of his day was destroying the people who he loved. Now, this is something that we need to look at and we need to understand because he is a model for us. When in our country, we look at the political power structure and we see that it's adversely affecting members of our community, I think we need to be like Jesus. We need to stand up. We need to march ourselves down to those power structures. And we need to say, this has to stop. Now, I know a message like this is hard to preach in a congregation like ours. And the reason why is because we are so diverse in terms of our politics. The truth is that unlike many congregations that are either one way or another, I mean, a lot of them are heavily tilted one way or another, we are a total mix in between. That's why I generally avoid talking about politics at all in my sermons, because I know I'm going to just really make half of you mad. So (laughs) 
I just say, you know what? Not worth it, okay? But that doesn't change Jesus' directive, does it? Jesus went at the political power structure because he could directly link the suffering of his people with the people who held leadership positions. And so, as Christians, I think that our goal, our guideline for when we need to challenge our leadership is when we see that our political leaders are causing the suffering of people. And this was done, by the way, we have a great track record of this in Christianity. In this country in particular, you go back and you see we've done this time and time again where Christians have been asked to do the impossible and they have succeeded. When slavery was at its zenith in America, Christians came out and fought the government and said, this is immoral, this is wrong, we cannot continue doing this. Now, it seemed like this was impossible to do, that this wasn't going to get changed because slavery was so much a part of the economy of the United States and slavery was so much embedded in the political structure of our government. But Christians kept pressing, they kept pressing, and eventually that was part of what sparked the Civil War. And in the end, slavery was abolished and deemed morally abhorrent. The impossible became possible. In the early 1900s, when women were considered property, Christians fought the government for their right to vote. And it seemed impossible at the time because America had been founded on a patriarchy. And that patriarchy was at the center foundation of our political system. But Christian women all over the country banded together and they rallied and they said, we are equal in the eyes of God. Men and women are equal. And this garnered enough support for the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, which gave women the right to vote. The impossible became possible. When children were being used as cheap labor in factories, Christians fought the government to enact child labor laws. Didn't seem like it was going to happen. It felt impossible because all of those factory owners, they were sending huge sums of money in order to stop that legislation from passing through. They kept saying, you know what? If if you get rid of the children, we're not going to be able to make a profit if we have to use an all-adult workforce. But the Christians kept pressing, and they said, look, this is not the way that we do things. Children are sacred. You don't do this. And eventually, they won today. The impossible became possible. When racism was preventing minorities in our country from being able to vote and enjoy all the privileges of the American economy, Christians in the 1950s and 60s banded together to start the civil rights movement. And that movement seemed like it wasn't going to go anywhere because racism was so entrenched in our society and in our political system, but they were able to enact sweeping civil rights legislation. The impossible became possible. When you see that your government is discriminating against a segment of our population, it is your job as a Christian, it is your duty as a Christian to stand up and to speak out against our government, that political power structure. You need to make sure that you are doing what Jesus did. When he saw that his people were suffering, he stood up, he spoke out. That is our job as well. And so my prayer for you today, as we walk alongside Jesus through Holy Week, to the cross and to his resurrection, my hope for you is that you might 
ask yourself, where is God asking me to be politically active? Where is our government discriminating against those who cannot speak for themselves? What are the civil rights issues of our day and time where we sit there and we say, this is wrong, this must change, and we must do something to fix this? And wherever you find those issues, my prayer for you is that you would follow in the footsteps of Jesus because what he proves to us time and time again is that the impossible can become possible. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.